Mr. Master of Ceremonies, Mr. Harris, ladies and gentlemen, I would like to thank all of you, and especially those who organized this event, for the very warm welcome that my wife and I received here in Lincoln, Nebraska, at this university. I'm impressed by what I've learned about what you're doing, about how forward-looking you are, and uh, which makes me very proud of wearing what I've been given here tonight. <laughs> I wish this university well. We live in challenging times, and it is about those challenging times that I would like to address you tonight. The United States, ladies and gentlemen, is on the threshold of a new era in the global leadership role that it has played since the end of World War II. Your recent election campaign was watched with greater interest and concern by the rest of the world than any other in your history. The result was almost universally welcomed by the international community. It was seen as an indication that the United States would be reviewing the nature of the role that it will be playing in world affairs under President Obama. The decisions that the new administration takes on the United States' approach to international affairs during the coming critical years will impact on all of us. On my own country, South Africa, on the continent from which I come, Africa, on seminal questions relating to security in an age of continuing terrorism, on the future strength, vitality, and fairness of the international trade system, on the reconstruction of the global financial system in the wake of the current crisis, and on the central challenge of protecting our global environment from the alarming implications of global warming. These questions will also affect the lives of everyone in this hall, of everyone at this university, and of everyone here in Nebraska. Nothing, ladies and gentlemen, could appear to be more secure or more American than Nebraska in the heart of the Midwest. And yet, all of you here at the University of Nebraska will ultimately be affected not just by what happens here and in the United States, but by developments on the global stage. Your future lives will be affected by the rise of China and India, by the ongoing crisis in the Middle East and Iraq, by the global financial crisis, and by the increasingly inescapable reality of global warming and climate change. An important factor in determining the future well-being of all of us will be how America will play its global leadership role in a rapidly changing world, a world that is full of threats and opportunities. And that is the topic that I would like to address tonight. And it is a topic that is 
at the center of the debate so soon after the inauguration of President Obama. If the world has become a globalized village, there can be little doubt that for the past 20 years, the United States has been its mayor and its chief of police. America held these positions not because it was elected to them, but because of the unchallenged military, economic, and technological preeminence that it has enjoyed since the end of the Cold War. One of the central realities that President Obama must address is that this era is coming to an end. The United States will remain the world's leading power for some time to come. But increasingly, this role will be played in a multipolar arena where China, Europe, India, and other emerging powers will play next to the USA also significant roles. This means that the age of unilateralism in world affairs might fast be coming to an end. This might, of course, not be such a bad thing for the United States. America's role as the de facto so global leader has involved heavy burdens and heavy responsibilities. The USA has to spend a disproportionate share of its national wealth on the upkeep of its global military capability. Its preeminence has made it a target for disaffected groups all over the world. Osama bin Laden would not have targeted the World Trade Center and the Pentagon if they were not military and commercial symbols of the richest and the most powerful country in the world. The price of preeminence has always been unpopularity. America has had to endure the jealousy of some of its oldest allies, many of whom delight in taking pot shots at her policies while safely sheltering beneath her strategic umbrella. It was likely that the United States would be criticized whatever it did when it acted to free Iraq from the tyranny of Saddam Hussein. It was accused of imperialism. When it failed to intervene in other crises, such as the ongoing conflict in Darfur, it was slated for being insensitive to the plight of Africans. To quote Bart Simpson, you damned if you do and you damned if you don't. <laughs> Unfortunately, this is the price that America had to pay for being the only remaining superpower. It is a price that was well understood by other preeminent powers in history, from the Romans 2,000 years ago to the British during the 19th century. The question is, therefore, what leadership role should America now play at this historic junction, juncture and moment in its history? when a young and dynamic president has just taken up his enormous responsibilities? What challenges confront him as the leader of the free world 
at a troubled time. When the United States first ascended the stage of world power at the beginning of the last century, President Terry, Teddy Roosevelt's approach was, and I quote, to speak softly and carry a big stick. He said that by doing so, America would go far. He was right. The big stick is undoubtedly necessary. After the terrorist outrage of 11 September 2001, it was essential for the United States to use its big stick against international terrorism. It was right and proper to overthrow the Taliban regime, which had provided the main operational base for the terrorist attacks against America. It is right for the United States and its NATO allies to continue to combat the resurgent Taliban forces in Afghanistan. President Obama will be confronted with hard choices in Afghanistan relating to the continuation of the difficult but necessary war against the Taliban. However, he will confront these choices together with NATO allies who are equally aware of the importance of their mission. It was and remains essential to put pressure on any country providing a safe haven for Al-Qaeda. It was and still is equally important to launch a global campaign to track down terrorists wherever they might be hiding. In all this, America's big stick played and continues to play an essential role. But what of Iraq? On the one hand, the reality is that if it had not been for the resolute action of the United States, Saddam Hussein would still be in power in Baghdad. He would still be doing everything in his power to deceive the international community. And he would still be repressing the Iraqi people. All of the hand-wringing of some of America's allies and all of the resolutions in the United Nations would have meant nothing to him. There can be no doubt about one thing. Iraq, the Middle East, and the world are better places after the destruction of his brutal regime. The challenge confronting President Obama will now be to disengage in as responsible a manner as possible. That is what the Iraqi government wants. That is what the people of the Middle East want. And that is what, an increasing, what increasing numbers of Americans demand. All these things are true in the tough neighborhood of international politics. The big stick is essential. But it is equally important to remember Teddy Roosevelt's advice to speak softly. Military force has a place in international affairs, but at the end of the day, it cannot create lasting solutions. As we have seen all too clearly during the past five years, military force also carry with it immense risks. 
It is much easier to start wars, ladies and gentlemen, than to end them. Also, the outcome of war is always uncertain. The Austrians, the Russians, and the Germans did not think at the beginning of the First World War that the result would be the destruction of their ruling dynasties. And when Napoleon marched his grand army into Russia in 1812, he did not foresee the disaster that would soon befall him. History is full of similar examples, which have persuaded wise leaders to resort to war only as the very last option. In the same way, one should think very carefully about beginning military adventures far from one's shores, with few sure allies in very volatile neighborhoods. There are therefore, apart from the fact that the big stick is essential, also clear limitations to the use of the big stick. It is essential to deal with clear and present threats when it can be wielded swiftly, accurately, and effectively. But it is problematical when it requires long, costly, and unpopular operations on foreign soil. That is why the United States, in its global leadership role, should constantly always consider also the necessity of speaking softly. Speaking softly does not mean being weak. Speaking softly requires a multilateral approach to international crises. It does not mean that the international community must forego the option of using military force. But it does mean that if it is finally used, there will be less criticism and a greater chance of success. The speaking softly option also recognizes that long-term solutions can be achieved only by addressing the root causes of conflict. And what are they? They are poverty, repression, ignorance, and fanaticism. The challenge to the world leaders is therefore to address to my mind the following priorities. The first is the scourge of poverty. Poverty arising from the failure of some parts of the world to join in the global march to prosperity. The second is the promotion of good governance and fundamental rights and freedoms and the rule of law. And the third is the peaceful resolution of the conflicts that continue to lie at the root of so much instability and so much human suffering. Poverty must be limited and hopefully, as an idealist, can I say, eradicated. Good governance and the recognition of human rights and the rule of law has brought the successful countries of the world where they are. And the peaceful resolution of conflicts, as we have proven in South Africa, can prevent catastrophes, can make the world a better place, can build bridges where people 
never expected bridges to be built, can be resolved. We are, ladies and gentlemen, living through one of the most profound developments in human history, the process that we have come to call globalization or world integration. During the past decades, we have begun to lay the foundations of a new supranational global community. And one of the central implications of this new community is that none of us, and particularly not the leading powers, can any longer ignore problems and grievances in distant countries. Non-performing economies cannot be relegated to a sort of a, a basket case category outside of the mainstream of global commerce. And bloody crises and conflicts in distant societies cannot be dismissed with mere 30-second segments on the evening news. In the new millennium, it will be less and less possible to ignore the stark reality that a large part of the human population still lives in unacceptable poverty, misery, and repression. Some will argue that there has been progress that the portion of the world's population living in absolute poverty has declined from two-thirds to one-third in the past 45 years. True. However, fact is that the total number of people living below the poverty line has stayed about the same, at about two billion. Because the world's population has more than doubled since 1960. Even more serious is the fact that the disparity between the poorest and the richest countries is widening. The gap isn't being bridged, it's growing. In 2005, the per capita income of the richest OECD countries measured in US dollars was 84 times higher than the per capita income of the least development developed countries. To bring it closer home, the GDP per capita here in the United States was almost $42,000 in 2005, approximately 100 times more than the per capita income in the least developed countries. In a shrinking world, and our world is shrinking, the problems of one region will inevitably become the problems of other regions and ultimately of the whole world. Borders are no longer so important. Diseases like AIDS, which first appeared in Africa, do not observe international boundaries. And as we are now witnessing the subprime crisis that started here in the United States, is impacting on economies all over the world. No one knows where it will all end, and tackling it as he is doing will be one of President Obama's first and foremost and difficult challenges. But what we cannot deny is that we are now living in an increasingly integrated global financial system where a problem in one area can affect economies all over the world. 
like in the same way, conflicts and instability in distant societies can also reverberate throughout the whole international community. The fact is that developments in Georgia and Pakistan can affect people living thousands of miles away, also right here in Lincoln. Who would have thought eight years ago that religious fanatics hiding in caves in distant Afghanistan could possibly pose a threat to the high-tech nerve center of the world's most powerful economy in downtown New York. And ladies and gentlemen, whether we live in the first world or in the third world, we all share the same fragile global environment. The production of greenhouse gases, the decimation of tropical forests, and the extinction of animal and plant species will have long-term consequences for the whole planet. Make no mistake about it. Global warming is going to affect you, your children, and your grandchildren. Here in Nebraska, and for us in South Africa, and China, and wherever you might find yourself in the world. In our globalized society, such problems as the ones I've referred to and others that you could add, and such conflicts will sooner or later breach international borders and will affect the interests of us all. It is equally true that the problems confronting a globalized world can no longer be dealt with unilaterally by any single country. Regardless of how powerful or rich that country might be, no country can tackle the global problems alone. Problems of global development, of global security, and protection of the global environment can be dealt with only if the international community works in concert. The United States can and must play a pivotal leadership role in this process, but it cannot achieve success alone. Under its leadership and the leadership of other prominent countries, the international community, I believe, should develop the policies, the resources, and the will to tackle the root causes of global problems. We need to recognize the symbiosis, the symbiosis between stability, prosperity, and freedom. Economic prosperity creates the environment in which democracy and free institutions can grow. And democracy and free institutions, in turn, help to promote the stability that is essential for economic growth. It's all interrelated. There's an undeniable link between peace, development, growth, and democracy. Only three of the countries in the world with per capita incomes of less than 1,000 US dollars are full democracies, while nearly all of the 20 richest countries, those with per capita incomes above 20,000 US dollars, are democracies. There's also a link between levels of development and peace. 
11 of the 30 poorest countries, including Afghanistan, have in recent years been wrecked by devastating civil wars. On the other hand, none of the 20 richest countries currently ex experience any form of serious internal conflict. So the poor countries are involved in internal wars. Therefore, there's a link between the levels of development and peace. How then can we achieve this symbiosis between economic development, stability, democracy, and a vibrant civil society? I only have time for a few guidelines. In the sphere of the economy, the developed countries need to help to promote economic growth in the least developed societies. More attention needs to be given to the debt burden of the world's 41 most highly indebted poor countries, 34 of which are in Africa. Some steps have been taken by the IMF to address this problem, but I believe more needs to be done. Steps should also be taken to increase the third world's share in global trade. Let me give you a shocking figure. Africa, with almost 17% of the world's population, account for only 2% of global trade. Something terribly is wrong somewhere. Third world exports need more favorable access to first world markets. The unacceptable reality is that the world's most developed nations spend 280 billion US dollars on subsidies to their own farmers and only 56 billion US dollars on foreign aid. The handful of farmers in America and the European Union get five times more in subsidies than the two billion people living beneath the breadline. Something is wrong somewhere. The poor countries also require higher levels of foreign and domestic investment. They have to achieve at least 5% growth in real terms if they are to break out of the grip of poverty. And many of them are simply not getting the investment and the developmental projects to achieve this. I also believe that the international community needs to continue and strengthen its efforts to promote good governance, democracy, and the rule of law in third world countries. 20 of the 45 countries of Sub-Sahara Africa are presently or have recently been involved in wars. And much of this instability can be ascribed to the lack of democratic mechanisms and the absence of the rule of law. I think the international community should do more to encourage third world countries to proceed with democratic reforms and should find ways and means of rewarding those countries who are really trying to do the right thing and who are beginning to make a breakthrough in that direction. 
and I believe the leading countries of the world with the United States in its leading position should not hesitate to act against regimes that grossly violate human rights and that subvert democracy. The government of Robert Mugabe of Zimbabwe is a recent prime example. The United States, I believe, should support very strongly current initiatives to bring about a democratic settlement in Zimbabwe as an essential prerequisite for the reconstruction of its devastated economy. And I believe that the USA should adopt a much more proactive stance in diffusing potential conflicts and in promoting the peaceful resolution of disputes. And I welcome President Obama's the fresh breath which he is bringing to the need to talk and to also use not just the big stick, but to also speak softly. One of the fundamental causes, ladies and gentlemen, of conflict throughout the world lies in the inability of different ethnic and cultural groups to coexist peacefully within the same societies. In the post-Cold War world, conflict seldom takes place between countries. In 2007, none of the 14 significant conflicts that afflicted the world were between countries. They were all within countries, primarily between ethnic, cultural, or religious communities. The present or recent conflicts in the Sudan, the Middle East, the former Yugoslavia, Southern Asia, Rwanda, Burundi, Sri Lanka, and Kenya, all bear bloody testimony to this fact. The unresolved conflict in the Middle East is a good example of both the challenge that the international community faces and of the risks that such conflict can hold for the entire world. As we have seen in the recent conflict in Gaza, the ongoing tension between Israel and the Palestinians continues to threaten the stability of the region and negates efforts to find peaceful solutions. It heightens tension in the Middle East, tensions that could affect oil production and deepen the international economic crisis. This tension is causing enormous strains in relations between Muslims throughout the world and the West, and in particular the United States. And the passions that the conflict in Israel and Palestine has unleashed have created an environment in which fanaticism and terrorism can flourish. For all these reasons, the United States as the preeminent world power, I believe, cannot afford to allow the conflict to linger on decade after decade. Just as war is too important to be left to the generals, peace in the Middle East is too important to the key interests of the whole international community to be left solely to the Israelis and the Palestinians. 
The Israelis and the Palestinians are simply going to have to find some way of learning to live together. This means that both sides will have to take risks. Both sides will have to make painful compromises. Both sides will have to accept that military force and suicide terrorist bombings will only accelerate their downward spiral into ever-deepening conflict. And at the end of that conflict, after immense and unnecessary suffering, they will have to start to negotiate. Although this situation looks desperate, ladies and gentlemen, I do not believe that it is hopeless. I recall the dreadful period that South Africa went through between 1984 and 1987. We also were confronted by our own version of the Intifada. We also resorted to draconian security measures to restore order. We also experienced growing international isolation and condemnation. But we pulled back from the brink. We discovered that there was another way. That it was possible to solve our long-standing and bitter disputes through peaceful means. In the process, we learned a number of lessons. We learned that we could not dictate with whom we would negotiate. Whether we liked it or not, we had to sit eyeball to eyeball with people and parties that had been our bitter enemies. We found that the negotiations should be as inclusive of poss as possible. And for that reason, we invited all parties with significant support to join the process. We learned that all sides had to take enormous risks. If you want for, wait for all the fine print to be finalized, you never get a real solution. At times, you have to take calculated risks. We learned that all sides had to make very painful compromises. All sides had to accommodate the reasonable concerns and the reasonable interests of those which sat at the other side of the table. We learned that only through give and take could you reach a workable compromise which would have the support of all the major constituencies in a very diverse society such as ours. And finally, we in South Africa emerged from that with a new constitution, a good one, a constitution which guaranteed the individual and collective rights of all our people, and which is enabling us to live together with one another in peace and in cooperation. And if we could do it, the Israelis and the Palestinians should also be able to do it. And the United States and the rest of the international community can play a major role in this process to help to bring this about. They can do so by urging the parties to cease all violent acts and to return to negotiations. They can do so by insisting that both sides should make the concessions that will be essential to reach a just 
and lasting peace. They can do so by giving cast-iron guarantees that any agreement that the parties reached will be honored by all and will be upheld by the international community. Above all, ladies and gentlemen, the United States and the international community should make it clear to all those involved that there can be no peace until Hamas accepts Israel's right to exist. The most eloquent response to global terrorism would be to achieve a settlement there that would ensure the security of Israel living in harmony with a viable Palestinian state. These then, in closing, I believe are the priorities that confront the United States in its global leadership role. America should take the lead in tackling the problem of underdevelopment and continuing third world poverty. Should take the lead in promoting conditions in which good governance, democracy and basic human rights will be enjoyed by all mankind should take the lead in creating a more stable international financial system and a fairer trade dispensation, should take the lead in finding solutions to the challenge of global warming, and should take the lead in finding peaceful solutions to the conflicts that continue to afflict the world and particularly intercommunity conflict and the impasse between Israel and Palestine. The United States, ladies and gentlemen, as the world's leading power, will inevitably have to play a disproportionate role in addressing these challenges. It is part of the burden of world leadership that America will continue to play under President Obama. World leadership is a difficult business. It requires huge expense and the will to maintain a military capability with global reach. It requires patience to endure the jealousy and criticism of much of the rest of the world. And it requires perseverance to address the underlying causes of global conflict. But above all, it requires firm and continuing belief in and commitment to the ideals for which your country stands. It should be remembered that most of the great civilizations declined and disappeared from the world stage because they lost belief in the ideals that inspired their birth and their growth. In shouldering the burden of world leadership, Americans should not forget why their country became so strong and so preeminent in the first place. The key to addressing its global role may be for the United States to resist the temptation of becoming absorbed with what it is accused of doing wrong. It should perhaps redouble its commitment to the things that it has done right. Your country, ladies and gentlemen, is one of the freest and the most democratic countries that the world has ever seen. Many other countries have liberal democratic constitutions, 
but the freedom of their citizens is hemmed in on every side by bureaucratic and nanny state restrictions. You have just completed one of your regular democratic transitions of government. You have no idea how your politics impact on the whole of our global village. Hundreds of millions of people around the world watched your recent election process with almost as much interest as Americans themselves. The outcome of your elections was so important to the world as a whole that many observers in countries all over the world felt somehow that they should also have the vote. However, ladies and gentlemen, there are many other aspects of your systems that people all over the world admire. In the United States, there are few restrictions on individual entrepreneurs to pursue their dreams, and by so doing, to contribute greatly to the commonwealth of the country. Your country still nurtures a healthy spirit of free competition, not only between individuals and companies, but also between cities and states competing for investment. And all this, and much more, has contributed to your excellence in scientific discovery, in technological innovation, and to your economic dynamism. In the final analysis, the greatness of the United States does not lie in the undoubted strength of its armies, its navies, and its air forces. It lies in the values and the ideals of personal and economic freedom that it represents. And if America can remain true to these ideals, it will succeed in carrying out its historic global leadership role. This, in essence, is the great challenge that confronts your young president. So far, he has shown every sign that he will meet the challenge with courage and distinction. The rest of the world, ladies and gentlemen, are looking not only to him, but to you in America. And we are hoping that at this seminal moment, which holds so much threat to the whole world and to your country, that in this seminal moment, America will be true to its ideals, stand up and take the lead in averting those threats and in creating new hope and room for idealism will help us to take important steps to win the war against poverty, important steps to ensure the spread of democracy, important steps to start a new era where we will close the gap between rich and poor in countries but especially also between, between countries and between continents. We look at America and hope and pray 
that this new big challenge which you face, you will accept and will share with all of us in the rest of the world. Thank you very much.